Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we, we were talking about an old pal of ours who was the ad director of Smash Hits, Rod Sop. Dear old pal. And uh, remembering all the very funny things he used to say in the office. Very sad that he died uh, very recently. And Dave, you went to the funeral. And uh, I've, I've, not, I've not talked to you since. How was it? It was, uh, well, it's a funeral, you know. Um, and... Um, the thing about Rod, as I think we, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago when we talked about him, it was the first time we met. So Rod was born in 1945, something like that. So he's a little bit older than us. And uh, and when we first met him, his kind of claim to fame was he was an old mate of Rod Stewart's. And because Rod was an ad man, and anybody who's dealt with ad men know that they kind of exaggerate things in you know, they do anything to get an opening, you know, whatever. You always take anything they say with a bit of a pinch of salt. We always thought he was making up, didn't we? Well, we always or thought... Or we met him, but they weren't yeah, actually pals. He was slightly over-egging the pudding or whatever. Anyway, yeah. Um, they used so, to talk about, they used to go to the Lyceum Ballroom, didn't they, and the Hammersmith Palais, and they had Gino Washington in their, in their schmutter, as he used to call it, uh, their mod suits. Absolutely. Original mod, I mean, genuinely. Oh, yeah. Original mod. Um... So anyway, the 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 funeral took place at a small crematorium down in um, Kent, and um, you know, I don't know, about fifty, sixty people there or something, and um, you know, a bunch of people who like me had worked with Rod in magazines or advertising, or whatever, over the years, and it was um, as many of these. Things are nowadays, they're kind of determinedly uh, um, non-religious, you know, secular. You, have, you don't have a vicar, you have a kind of celebrant and so forth. And there's, 
you know, little order of service put together by his his daughter. Um, and um, he, and there's there's pop records, which is something I never entirely get used to myself, you know, because <laughs> I brought up in a certain way. But anyway, you know, so that we, uh, you know, there was there was kind of Aretha Franklin say a little prayer and so forth during a a, a, a kind of PowerPointy kind of slideshow of you know pictures of Rod throughout the years and so forth, which was nice to see. And you know there was the celebrant was talking about you know the things he'd done in in his life and so forth, and and actually mentioned Rod Stewart you know that he used to drive Rod Stewart around was a mate of Rod Stewart and so forth, and um, and anyway later in the in the in the proceedings they played Rod Stewart's Maggie May which I have to say is a kind of odd thing to hear in those kind of circumstances very you know? odd. <laughs> it's, no, it's an odd, it's not the it's kind a, of sombre sound. <laughs> it's, a, it's an odd record in all kinds of ways. Thank you, mate. Anyway, but, you know, they played that and so forth, and um, and then we got to the end of, of the um, the service, if we call it that, and uh, you know the, the, we were kind of the doors were open, and we were we were gestured towards the outside where we might go into the. Memorial Garden and look at the floral tributes and all that and do all those things that people do when milling around after funerals. And it was only at that point, at the end of, at the, end of the service, that I, I turned and, and looked in the pew behind and found myself looking directly into the face of Rod Stewart. Fantastic. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> the I- ultimate proof after all these years of us <laughs> doubting... <laughs> We thought he'd kind of made this up. I oh thought God, to myself, I, I couldn't, couldn't help thinking to myself, if ever anybody had the last laugh, <laughs> it's Rod Sop, you know. We thought, you never quite believed me, did you? So there was Rod Stewart. And Rod Stewart's, you know, he's like inches away from me. And Rod Stewart's got one of those faces. He's just, he's just unbelievably famous, you know. And the haircut and yeah. so forth, and all that. It's like you know, what are you, what Rod Stewart are you looking at? You're looking at you know the the spitting image Rod Stewart. You're looking at the the Rod Stewart used to be on the cover of the NME and so forth. You know all this kind of stuff. Anyway, there he was, and you have to give him points for you know for, for he turned up. With with mate with uh, or a mind? No, mate, nobody out there. Presumably there's a driver around the corner. Um, yeah. But no, he was on his own. He's on his own. And, uh, you know, there was. So as we were milling about afterwards in the Garden of Remembrance and so forth, there were, there were people inevitably couldn't resist coming up and saying, I've got all your records kind of thing, you know, even, even within those kind of circumstances. And I have to say, he dealt with it very, very elegantly and so forth. And Nick Logan, who was the who was there, and Nick was the guy who started Smash Hits and used to be the editor of The Enemy and so forth. Um, you know, Nick told him that, that when... That when he first got the job, they said he got the job because he was a mate of Rod Stewart, and we never believed him. And Rod thought uh, Rod Stewart thought this was 
richly amusing. Well, also rather wonderful that at his funeral, he would discover that perhaps his entire life as an advertising exec in this world was based on his connection with Rod to some extent, wasn't it? That's extraordinary. Absolutely it's brilliant. It's one of the most extraordinary experiences I've ever had at a funeral. So, uh, Rod, you would have laughed. You're listening to The Word Podcast, where the time is whenever you want it to be. And while we're on a Smash Hits tip, we must mention another dear old pal who worked on Smash Hits and various other places, our old pal Tom Hibbert. Mm-hmm. Because a book, a very, really, really good book, actually, um, a compilation of his writings and uh, people who knew him talking about his life uh, has come out. It's called Few A Readers. What a great title. The Life and Writing of Tom Hibbert. At the top, uh, there's a quote from Neil Tennant, who worked with us and him on Smash It. says, the funniest and most revealing of all music journalists. So I thought it was a really good point. And I think it's possibly true, actually. I mean, Tommy, for those listening who don't know, I'm sure everyone does know, actually. He, you know, he worked for um, Smash Hits and, and Q and Mojo, and he went on to be Penn Dennis and The Observer and worked for them for the Mail on Sunday. And uh, I was just rereading this, and something struck me very, very powerful powerfully that I hadn't really thought of before, which is that he didn't like that much music, no, as you know. Didn't. Which is very interesting because your normal qualification to be a rock critic is to have an enormously broad, uh, you know, experience, listening experience. Right across the range, you can say something about any kind of music, electronic music, folk music, whatever. Tom, when I met him, we lived together in 1980 when we were working on a, a, a title called New Music News. And uh, he looked at my record collection, was absolutely horrified by it. And uh, he had things like Squeeze and, you know, Paul McCartney, Kraftwerk and things that he didn't like. And I discovered that he only really liked the narrowest band of music. He basically, there's a bit, there's a really good piece actually in, the, in this, where he talks, uh, sets out his stall, where he talks about going to Bath Festival when he's a kid. And uh, he sleeps through the Pink Floyd and uh, Fairport Convention. He doesn't like Santana or Keith Hartley. He loathes Led Zeppelin. He can't stand the Pink Fairies. He's only there to see the birds. And when the birds come on, they play acoustically and they're absolutely terrible. So the whole thing is just shocking. But I just love that sort of principle. So he liked the birds. He liked Iggy Pop. He liked Rocky Erickson, 13th Floor Elevators. He liked uh, a bit of Moby Grape. Um, he, liked, he liked the Kinks. And that's about it. I was only thinking about this. It's so funny you should say this because I'm thinking about my personal memories of Tom. Uh, I remember he came to my wife's 40th birthday party, which you may remember. And this was at a wine bar in the city, which is owned by a friend of ours. Anyway, it was very very nice too. And and we had music, which I think I'd probably provided or made some kind of tape or whatever it was in those days. I don't know. So there are all kinds of, you know, music for dancing and so forth. And I well remember, I've never forgotten this, never, ever forgotten this, that he only got up and danced to one record. And you, because he would, would otherwise it would have been the only person on the dance floor, you went and danced with him, and it was Hang On Sloopy by the McCoys. That was the only one, the only one that Tom considered, you know, was cool enough. Uh, and kind of a strange enough. And I think Hang On Sleepy by the McCoys is just uh, perfect. If you, if you wanted to put a dart in the centre of Tom Hibbert's taste, that would be it. Yes. You know, and, and then outside that, there was, there was a very sharp drop-off. He wouldn't like anything that was like it. 
he would just like that thing. Yes, he would. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because he celebrated those kind of qualities. And uh, and I, I can see him now dancing. And this is a long old time ago. I can see him da- now dancing to that record. thin legs. <laughs> his knees looking like they bend the wrong way like a bird. <laughs> and it, rem- it reminded me, you know the great story about Big Star, who Tom also adored, you know, definitely liked. Yeah. So Big Star was signed to Ardent Records, and Ardent Records had a load of money. And you know they thought, but this this group's extraordinary. What they're doing, spending ages in the studio, and then we put it out. Well, they found out the great truth of Big Star is that people didn't like them. They couldn't get gigs in Memphis at all. People just didn't like them. And so Arden were really worried about what to do with the second album, so they sponsored something called the first Rock and Roll Journalism Conference. Do you remember this? Yeah. And they flew in people from all over the world, from all over the United States and all over the world. So Pete Frame went from Zigzag and so forth, and, I don't know, Ira Robbins from Trouser Breast, and all these kind of people. <clears throat> And they took advantage of having all these people <coughs> to put Big Star on stage in front of them. And so Big Star hit the stage. And suddenly, all these rock journalists who'd never come across them before suddenly got up and started dancing. Ill-coordinated. In the least attractive looking, yeah. All dancing with each other on their own. Absolutely. <laughs> Probably no women on the dance floor at all. Definitely <clears throat> no women whatsoever. And these were these were men who'd never, you know, how can we say, danced in anger in their lives yeah. ever. But, you know, they were rock critics. And so Ardent were able to look out and say, these are our people. <laughs> so Absolutely proved, right. So it proved the only people who liked them were rock critics, really. Completely. Didn't, didn't go beyond that. So Tom was kind of... He was, he was a unique individual. He was. Very, very, he felt really passionate about it. And Neil Young was another big one. He liked. And those were, the, those were the groups that really ad, adhered to particular principles. Yeah. And it's quite interesting because, therefore, he was required to write about a huge amount of stuff about which he kind of knew and cared very little. So he was forced into trying to find some entertaining way into them. You know, he finished up later on writing for the Mail on Sunday stuff. He had to write, obviously, about all the big acts, like Queen and Rod Stewart and people he didn't like, Tina Turner, people he just didn't like. So his way around that was just to find a a, a really (coughs) all-absorbing way of describing their music. You know, it was very interesting. I was looking at some of the old reviews uh, uh, from Smash Hits, and he had this wonderful ability, because writing about music is very, very hard. As it you is. and I know, anybody writing, it's, it's, it's abstract. And people tend to look for kind of visual imagery. Tom was just really good at this. There's a lovely review in here of um, the Pet Shop Boys uh, and the Pet Shop Boys West End Girls. And he just says here, a tumble through Soho in the seedy wee-wee hours, accompanied by the kind of jaundice horns that are more often found on soundtracks of films about Hollywood actresses hitting the bottle and cracking up with mascara running down their faces, brackets, Valley of the Dolls springs to mind. Set against this, the electric bleats and demi-rap, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Fives, the message without the baseball bat, create an atmosphere of dull satirious sleaze, and that's almost sinister. Brr. You know, that way that he wrote, he would sort of, he would write about songs as if, you know, he wrote about Dexy's Midnight Run as, uh, as a single once and, and just created a play out of what the song was about. So he'd write about TV and about films and just things that kind of brought it to life. I thought that was interesting. I thought another thing he was really responsible for, I think, was this idea that he didn't, he didn't approve of journalists 
who who kind of were over fond of their subjects. You know, he he had a, a kind of um, a, a kind of preemptive. He talked about having a preemptive dislike for anybody who was over fraternised with, them, who wanted to be friends with the, the stars that they were they were interviewing. You know, and uh, I thought yeah, that was quite he, good. He wouldn't have got. He wouldn't have gone for for today's. Selfie culture, would he? Not Where every, remotely. Everybody comes back from interviewing somebody with a picture of them with their arm round. Oh yeah, no, we hated all that. And there is one, there is one picture of Tom. It's about I don't know, is it in this book? Because he famously went to interview Margaret Thatcher, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, for Smash Hits, and there is a picture of the two of them, isn't there? Yeah. And we, she kind of insisted on it, didn't she? she, did. she he told me that she'd patted the cushion and said, uh, what a nice young man. Come and sit down here beside me. <laughs> How wrong It's a brilliant was. picture because he looks terribly tense. He's there in his £19.99 <laughs> a snip Mr. Byright suit he's gone out to buy before. Looks incredibly awkward and embarrassed. But that's a brilliant piece because he describes in the opening of that the whole context of what he's doing about how the Prime Minister wants to get your vote, pop goats, as yeah. he calls the readers. <laughs> and uh, he's try- she's trying desperately hard to get you to like her by talking about her knowledge of pop music, which is really, really interesting, I think. <laughs> but no, he, he, he had this understanding that what was most interesting about the people he interviewed was the stuff not necessarily on the tape. It wasn't necessarily the things no, they said. No, absolutely. It was the details. It was what was going on in the room. Yeah. It was the clothes. It was what yeah. they wore, their mannerisms. Um, what somebody said to them who to put their head around the door, you know, the, the brand of cigarettes they smoked, whatever. All that stuff is really, really interesting, I think. And um, do, you know, yeah. do, you, do you know Hibbs's other secret weapon, which I don't know if this book particularly um, draws attention to? His secret weapon was you. Really? Because you were not like him at all. No. And so, and so all the rooms that he got into, you put him in. I did. You, you wouldn't have done that any of that. Well, I got into smash hits, it's true. And that's no, but, cute, no, but yeah. all those, in, yeah, okay, yeah. I don't just mean that. I mean yeah. Margaret Thatcher. I mean oh, yes, everybody yes. he interviewed. All those things could only be achieved by massive diplomatic offensive to, to suggest, you know, I think, I think Tommy, you know, talking to whoever, Elton John, would be really good. You know what I mean? Yeah. And would make it happen. Tom on his own would never have, never have made any of that stuff happen at all, didn't he? He, was, he responded to you. You were the person. You were the kind of impresario who put, ladies and gentlemen, in the left-hand corner, Elton John or whoever, in the right-hand corner, Tom Hibbert. Let well, that's commence. kind of you, but he had the skill to produce some absolutely electric. I know, but you cast him in those places. That's yeah, true. Yeah, and uh, I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm just um, giving credit where credit. Well, that's you. very, very kind of you. <laughs> very kind. But he also, yeah, he had a, a wonderful uh, ability to kind of make cartoon characters out of absolutely everybody, didn't he? Didn't he? Which tied very much into what Smash Hits was doing. That whole world of Dame David Bowie, Lord Lucan of Mercury. Absolutely. Remember that? Sir William of Idol, our greatest living Englishman. Actually, I think Neil Tennant made that one up. Sir Wacky Macca, Thumbs Aloft. Mark, thumbs unpronounceable aloft. name. <laughs> Mark of, of Big Cut. What was his name? Mark Brzezinski, was it? I can't It wasn't that. even that unpronounceable, I know. Really, but it was just And he invented all sorts of expressions that I think still kind of exist, actually, like Uncle Disgusting. Uncle Disgusting was a kind of word that he invented for sort of generally pervy, seedy characters. 
you know, like like uh, Gary Glitter or whatever, those kind of people. I think there's still, I think you kind of feel, I was listening to um, Today program the other day and Amal Rajan finished up by talking about some political crisis. He said, and then it all went horribly wrong. And I thought that's kind of Hibbs' expression. It's come it into, 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 into the public, uh, pu- public usage, isn't it? It is. It is. So there's the book. Um, is it out now? Probably. It's out on the first of Feb, I think. Yeah, and it's called "Few A Readers: The Life and Writing of Tom Hibbert." It's terribly good. Really, really well done. Paul Denoyer writes about him, and Chris Heath, and Sylvia Patz, and all sorts of people who work with him, and it's it's magnificent. And it's nice to see after all after what forty odd years him getting recognition for all this stuff. Wonderful. The Word Podcast. Two cocoa tins and a piece of string. So very sadly, Melanie went to that great gig in the sky last week. And I was just thinking, what a sliding doors moment that she was, she appeared at uh, the Woodstock Festival. She wasn't actually in the film or on the album. She appeared on the Friday night in the acoustic slot when the Incredible String Band were about to go on. And the Incredible String Band refused to go on because of the delicacy of their instruments and they didn't want to get wet and they didn't want their bowed gimbries out in the pouring rain. And <laughs> Joe Boyd, their manager, said, look, I'll, I'll get you another slot uh, the next day. And she went on and played between Ravi Shankar and Arlo Guthrie and eventually wrote a song. She flowers, uh, Candles in the Rain, was looking back at that image of being on stage at, uh, at Woodstock. Incredible String Band, incidentally, went on the next day between Keith Hartley and Canned Heat and died, died a thousand deaths. And it was sort of the moment when their career started to nosedive back downwards again. So weird sliding doors moments there going in two directions. But, I mean, a, a lot of her success around that time was that song, uh, Candles in the Rain, and that was based on the fact that she'd played at the Woodstock Festival. And she was... Briefly, Dave, wasn't she? Very hip. Do you remember? There was a period. You kind of look back at her now and think that she, she, she wasn't. She, she was. was. She that, was hip for a very short period of time. Yeah. But she was popular for a lot longer. Yeah, yeah. You know, she was, uh, I always kind of associate her with a kind of emerging Radio 2 sound, you know, that yeah. slightly crossover between uh, kind of what you might call middle of the road and, uh, and the rock sensibility. But a very distinctive voice. Really, nobody nobody sounded like her at all, and she was yeah. enormously popular for for a few years. But it's interesting that she didn't enter the pantheon of legends. And I can't help thinking that a lot of that is due to the fact that, alongside a, another handful of uh, performers. She appeared at Woodstock, but wasn't in the film. <laughs> I don't know if a record company, you know, or management, or there was some reason why she wasn't. Because if you look at the other people who were also at Woodstock, weren't in the film. Creedence Clearwater Revival were at Woodstock and weren't in the film. The band were the at band Woodstock, were. Woodstock and weren't in the film. And... You know, it it kind of stopped them breaking through to a really, really mass audience. I mean, I know Creedence had obviously had huge numbers of hits and so forth. But, you know, so much of the fame of people like Sly and the Family Stone and Jimmy Oh, ten years after. And and The Who and all those things is all based on people's folk memory almost of having seen them. Yeah. In the Woodstock film, against the background of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, you know, so, oh, well, Joe Cocker. Yeah. Joe Cocker, the rest of his career 
was all owed to to his great coming Completely. out. Completely, that's the mental image you have of him. If you say <laughs> really? the word Joe Cocker, you just see him there. It really in, in is. his tie-dyed T-shirt, yeah. Whereas Melanie wasn't really like that, and so she was. Um, she owed more to to being on the radio for a few years, but immensely popular. Yeah, for a having few that years. incredibly resonant, low kind of alto voice, extraordinary actually. The Word Podcast: Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. So in Los Angeles, there is a proposed court case involving uh, Madonna, uh, and a couple of people, I think, went to see her at a show. Actually, it wasn't in Los Angeles. It's in, it's in Brooklyn. It's New York. No, it's in New York. Yeah, two yeah. guys, Michael Fellows of Brooklyn and Jonathan Haddows of Bronx, and they filed a suit against her, haven't they? They went to, sing her. They went to see her. Uh, it's on the celebration tour. She's meant to be on stage at 830 and she took to the stage uh, at 10.45, between 10.45 and 11 p.m., and went off stage at 1 o'clock. And these guys were saying, look, we've got responsibility. We've got to be at work in the morning. We've got families to look after, and we've got to, we've missed all the public transport home, et cetera, et cetera. And so they're taking a they're – t- they're, they're suing her, aren't they? Well, and they're trying to, and she's going to resist it, and as are – Live Nation, who I think yeah. are the, the kind of promoters behind it. And you can see why they resist it, because, you know, once you are, once you allow people to do this, you, you're you're at the mercy of, of the next person who comes oh, along. Oh, God, yes. Say, I mean... You know, <laughs> but, but uh, you know, and I, I think it probably won't get very far, but it serves its purpose to draw attention to the fact that, uh, you know, people will no longer tolerate coming on late. I was surprised to learn that she'd done it so many times. I was too. Because I thought nowadays with, you know, curfews and, um, you know, promoters being liable to things go over, particularly on, and this was on a Sunday night, I think, or or a weekend, and so the curfew was slightly different. It certainly has been in other cases. Yeah. So, so people are very careful, you know, if they say the show's going to start at 8 or 8.30, it tends to start at 8 or 8.30 because, you know, they can't afford to, um, you know, to pay the, pay the but penalty. But this is pretty much exclusive going to, over time. to the rock and roll world, isn't it? I mean, if you went to the Royal Albert Hall to see Hulse of the Planet <laughs> and you expected it to start at 7.15 and they kind of shambled on at about 20 past 10, You'd be hacked off, wouldn't you? You know what's interesting <laughs> is that the, is that the excuse offered for this, with uh, and apparently she did this in London, in the same tour. <clears throat> the excuse offered, with no further explanation, is technical technical issues. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, 
like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Technical issues. Now think about that for a second. What the fucking hell does that mean? You know what I mean? This is a musical performance, supposedly, isn't it? Are all the performers in the building? Is the audience in the building? Are the microphones working? Do they do this show every night? There is certainly... There seems no reason why this musical performance could not start. Unless, unless, let's say, you have devised a show so complex and so sophisticated... In order to justify the increasing price of the ticket, that you then find yourself in a position not being able to make it happen as efficiently as it might. Well, whose bloody fault is that? (laughs) That is yours. Entirely yours. You know what I mean? And you should go out and apologise individually to those people who you have inconvenienced. Press $200 in cash into their sweaty palms. From what I gather... This is the opposite of this. Nobody apologises. Nobody comes on and says, oh, look, I'm really sorry about all this. I understand all your problems. You know, you're a, bloody, you're a professional entertainer. You've, you've invited them to be there at a certain time and then you've pissed them about. How dare you? No, absolutely, how dare you? But, but I mean, it, it used to be part of the whole fabric of the experience, wasn't it? If you went to go and see the Rolling Stones or whatever, you know, in the, in the 1970s, you would expect them to be late. And it's part of the, the, the building of the drama, wasn't it? And I speak as somebody who saw the Rolling Stones at Nebworth, and they came on, what, was it an hour and a half late? I mean, they came on stage at about 11 o'clock at night. The thing was meant to finish at 11 o'clock at night. Having a, having a, a sabotage the PA system. Okay, but look, in those days, let me tell you, there's a major difference between, there you're talking about 40 years ago. 40 years ago at a concert, the maximum age of the crowd would have been 35. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There was no They were only going to sleep in a ditch anyway. <laughs> Nowadays, if you're a Madonna and you go on at the O2 or wherever, your audience is going up to the age of Madonna and beyond, okay? So some of them are in their 70s, possibly. The bulk are probably in their 40s and 50s. They've been up since 6 o'clock that morning. They've done a normal day. They've gone through massive inconvenience and expense to be there. To, to think that they can just hang on for another three hours because it suits you is arrogant. It's appalling. No, it's arrogant. absolutely incredible. I, I can't believe you. Because you don't get that from, from Beyonce, do you? I don't think you don't get that from... from uh... Well, I don't know. I, I, I really no idea. But I think, you know, 
you know, the, the idea that um, some of these shows have uh, have been truncated because they started so late, and they just finish with "Good night, London." <laughs> Gone. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's no concession to the idea that that this is kind of special to you in the audience. It's your one night. It's your, you're expected to just deal with it because it's another night on Madonna's yeah, yeah. tour, you know. Tell you the other thing. Sorry, I'm getting on my high horse. I was intrigued reading the stories about this and by a funny thing. Uh, you know, it's newspaper style, never to kind of repeat the name of the uh, of the person of the subject yeah. of the story. So it starts off, Madonna is in court over so and so and so, so. And then it goes, you it's know... The this, ray of light superstar. There, yeah. there you go. And yeah. it goes, 65-year-old... And, and here, here's the expression that was used repeatedly about Madonna. And I wonder why it's used. They say, the singer-songwriter. Now, hang on. Hold, hold the phone. Hold your horses. <laughs> In what meaningful sense is Madonna a singer-songwriter? She has a name among the credits of, you know, the people who wrote the songs, you know. She's and not if you, sitting on a bar stool with an acoustic guitar, though, <laughs> wistfully pouring out that's, revelations that, of it. That's our understanding of what's meant by singer-songwriter, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Is a person, it's kind of single-handed, isn't it? You know what yeah, I mean? Oh, yeah. They do it on their own, or with Bernie Auteurs. Torben or yeah, whatever, yeah. you know. It's, this, is, this is me, this is my creative output. Madonna is not a singer-songwriter. What she is is another uh, hyphenate which I've just invented, which is not in wide use. She is a dancer-singer. Oh, good. Isn't she? Yeah, yeah. And if you... You know, everything that Madonna did before she became famous suggested she was one thing. She was a dancer. She studied dance. She got scholarships to do dance. She's clearly very good at it. She, you know, worked with lots of well-known well, dance Well, it's the little troops. dance act she did with her brother and her brother's pal that kind of clinched the success at it, uh, Live Aid, wasn't it? And it's and and she was the beginning of that whole, um, you know, kind of um, movement. You know, you could say Britney Spears is the same thing. She's a dancer singer. You know, nothing she does... Britney does not do not stand still at any point, does she? No. And, and sing. It's all it's routine. It's the sing, sing along with. So that's what I want to know. I want to know why Madonna is not why more widely known as dancer singer Madonna sixty five. The word podcast. One of the few things you really need in life. Welcome to Film Club. In previous <laughs> weeks, previous weeks we've been keeping you up to date with. Uh, Hot cinema favourites like uh, Bonnie and Clyde, and uh, what do we do after that? We remember. did Casablanca. Casablanca. Is this all the piping hot new releases? This week we're even more up to date uh, with um, something else that's on the BBC iPlayer. Hurry, hurry, hurry! Which is uh, King Kong. I hadn't seen King Kong for a long time, and. Uh, and so I sat down and watched it, and it's quite extraordinary, really. And because it struck me, tell me a more famous film than King Kong. You know, the very idea of King Kong, the very idea of the giant ape climbing the Empire State Building, you know, reaching in to try and get hold of 
the diaphanously attired Fay Ray. It's such a powerful idea, isn't it? And it's been adapted in, you know, album covers. And didn't didn't Lee Perry make an album called Super Ape? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think he did. I feel as if I, I've seen that absolutely everywhere. And that's an the idea. The concept that, of Beauty and the Beast, too, that, that whole notion. I suppose so, but it's also just the relative size, isn't it? You know? Yeah. And, uh, and it, it struck me that it was such a, it's such a cinematic idea, isn't it? It's not an idea. You couldn't write a book about it. You couldn't write a comic about it or anything. You couldn't do it in the theatre, obviously. You have to see it. You have to see the scale of it. And it's the kind of magic of the movies, isn't it? You know what I mean? You can see that that kind of thing that filled movie theatres at the time when it came out and would still can still make you make it stop nowadays. Don't you think so? It's oh, an absolutely. extraordinary piece of, piece of work. Yeah, it probably is the most... It, it's, it, two things struck me about it. One was that, that the, the, the kind of caricatures, the male and female caricatures, were so interesting. 1933, you know, the, the men were, were kind of... A, uh, omnipotent and uh, and and there to protect women who they found slightly annoying didn't they they didn't they they didn't want the girl on the boat because travelling with women was always a problem and women's <laughs> job was to look helpless and vulnerable and scream and yet except, somehow except to be fair mark if you if you got a boat full of grizzled old salts that's going out into the unknown you know ocean Chucking aboard the gorgeous Fay Ray it's in, going to cause problems. in a selection of night attire. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to cause problems. Anyway, carry on. No, I just thought it was so interesting. Those kind of that division between the sexes. It's because there's a love affair, isn't there? One of the guys on the boat, Jack, falls in love with her. She says, but you hate women. He says, but you ain't women. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. But the other thing, <laughs> the other thing is, well, two other things. One was that it builds up exactly like Jurassic Park builds and builds and builds to the moment where you see the creatures. Do you remember in Jurassic Park, you know what you're going to see and you see the awestruck expressions of the yeah, people who yeah. are looking there and yeah. when you pan over, it has to work. And when you look at it now, of course, there's King Kong, this incredibly creaky kind of stop-motion film thing. It doesn't look at all convincing, but at the time, it must have been very convincing, I think. But, but I'm going to go further <coughs> Like all these films, the special effects date really quickly, but the essential drama holds. So, and there's yeah. another film that may even be on the BBC iPlayer at the same time, Jaws, yeah. we watched happily to this day, Yeah, and we all think the shark looks ludicrous. Yeah, but it but doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. Doesn't, doesn't matter, matter at, all. at all, because what there's the drama of the town. It's Robert Shaw. It's you know, it's all this kind of it's all this kind of thing. It's and, and Jurassic Park. You know, nobody looks at the uh, the dinosaurs now. And goes wow. You look at the face of the actors. Yeah, completely. Uh, you know, and I think the same thing. The central image that stays with us in King Kong is Fay Ray. Yeah. Fay Ray with her hands up in front of her face. Yeah. Looking up at this looking up. At this unseen terror. Which she's required to do in those shots. She does those takes before they even meet King Kong. Before she even knows who she's going to be in the film with. <laughs> yeah. And that's fantastically clever dramatic device. 
The other, the other thing I think the film's about is just about it's about America actually at the time. It's about yeah, America, yeah, yeah. about scale. Yeah, everything yeah. in it is things you you find glamorous and admire. Everything is big. The Empire State Building was actually only finished the year before that film yeah, was made, it. and the Chrysler Building only a year before that. So it's it glorifies the massive scale of America. Gotham, Gotham, exactly. Aeroplanes, the press corps, Broadway, live theatre. Uh, the glamour of the movie industry, all of that was uniquely American. It must have seemed so thrilling at the time. Still worth watching. This is a junction in the Word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. Mark, what's the best song about being in a band? The best song about being in a band? I would say probably uh, The Loadout by Jackson oh, Brown. Oh, Do you right. know that Come song? On, I know that one, yes. That's an amazing song. It's about the road crew, isn't it's it? It's about the road crew, and it's about the kind of endless time and space and sense of dislocation of, of travelling, which is really interesting. I remember hearing that for the first time. He says, yeah, it's all about, and we get, we've got country and western on the bus, and R&B, we've got disco and eight tracks, and cassettes and the stereo, rural scenes, and magazines, we've got truckers on the CB, we've got Richard Pryor on the video. But he still talks about... Not knowing what town he's in, you know, all these towns are the same. We just pass the time in our hotel rooms and wander around backstage. It gives you this idea that it's not quite... Most of you assume that being on the road was this fabulously glamorous thing, you know, that just the, the fantasy of the rock journalist, wasn't it? You know, to be on the road with somebody. But, of course, for the people performing, endless, endless tedium. So that's no, good. I thought, but, uh, but also, band, sorry, yeah, can I cut across you there? Because... You reminded me that Running on Empty, which is the, the record that that comes from, yeah. is an absolutely fantastic record because it's not so much a, a live record. as a kind of documentary record made about being on the road, isn't it? Yeah. It, it's, if, if anybody's not heard it, you should hear it. It's a fantastic record. It also, <laughs> it also contains a wonderful song called Rosie. Um, which is another song, kind of about a road crew, a member of the road crew, who, who, and it's a song about how Jackson Brown managed to write this. I do not know uh, about a, a, a roadie has his eye on a girl uh, at a gig, and, uh, and then she runs off with the drummer at the end of the evening. He thinks he's on a promise, and so he he goes back to his hotel room. And how shall I put this? Seeks digital uh, <laughs> digital conversation, and uh, and it's uh, it's basically the song Rosie, the, you know the, the the heroine of the song Rosie is his hand, and yes. uh, and then the chorus is Rosie, you're all right. You wear my ring. When we turn out the light, I've got to hand it to you. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's a brilliant, it's brilliant really song. Clever. <laughs> so, running on empty is a fantastic kind of um, yeah the view of the uh, of the kind of underbelly of touring. The the reason I would ask the question about what's the greatest song about being in a band because I was listening to it the other day. My my personal favourite is Prefab Sprouts, Electric Guitars. Do you know this? Oh, no, I don't know. And, uh, and uh, you know, we were, we were songbirds, we were Greek gods, we were singled out by fate, 
We were quoted out of context. It was great. It's <laughs> <laughs> one of my favourite rhymes, that is. That's it was really, great. It's just what you, really funny. The way you call bathos. <laughs> that is it was. Absolutely perfect. And the other one is... Um, That's hilarious. Is Randy Newman's Vine Street, and um, which he wrote very early on, and the wonderful version recorded by Harry Nielsen on the record, Nielsen Sings Newman. And he actually starts with uh, a song that's supposed to be the, the song recorded by the band in, in the song. And then and gets into the actual song. He goes, that was me, third guitar. I wonder where the others are. That's just perfect. <laughs> that's just perfect. That's so good. This is all people guitar. are looking for is to pick him out of this mix. No, but third guitar. Third guitar. I wonder where the others are. That's fantastic. And it's just a memory of kind of being inside some kind of band who never really got anywhere and beyond rehearsals. And he, he's got a wonderful line in the song, which I always think would make a great title for a book. It's the crack of the backbeat on Vine Street. The crack of the backbeat. You know, it's, it's that, that sound that you hear if you're ever approaching... A place where a band are rehearsing on sound. Yes, you hear that from a distance. The crack of the backbeat. You know, there's no audience there or anything. It's just that the crack of the backbeat. Make a great title. Very emotive. That's a great title, isn't it? It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, great songs about being in a band. The word podcast. Clearly, there is no plan. And we are joined by a birthday guest, Roger Millington. Roger, fantastic to see you, and a happy birthday. And uh, I think you were saying you wanted a, a, a pair of Elvis Costello's 1978 glasses was the birthday present that you were pursuing for the new, for the look of the next year. Yes, yes. Um, I, I'm still stuck in the late 70s, early 80s. New wave, post-punk is my thing. And I was watching a video the other day and I thought, no, that's what I should go for. It, it will suit me as well, I think. He was also at the time, he was such a little weed that the glasses appeared to be absolutely the biggest thing about him. You know, yeah, they, yes, they were kind yes. of absolutely <laughs> huge. They were like they were like Dame Edna's glasses in comparison yes. to his face, really. Extraordinary. Yes, but what I like most about them is they were big but not wacky. So it wasn't Elton John. No, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Look at me. So they, they were functional, but right. still Standing so, out, yeah. so it's traditional for our for our birthday uh, Patreon uh, guest to to ask a question or throw a log on the fire. And, uh, and what's yours concerning, Roger? Okay, mine's concerning the national anthem. Um, <laughs> I'm not particularly. I don't have a particular strong sense of national identity, but there have been times when I've heard a particular song, usually at sporting events, and I thought, you know what, that should be the national anthem. Go on, give us examples because that's a, okay. that is a well, really, really tricky. Give okay. us some things actually, you think might work. Actually, it's, actually, it's actually been the same song on two occasions. So the first time was during the opening ceremony to the 2012 Olympics. And the second time was after an FA Cup semi final, which my team had won at Wembley. And the song is Heroes by David Bowie. Oh, uh, right, just, right, okay. I yeah. just, from 2012 onwards, it was watching that Olympic ceremony. I suddenly had a very strong emotional reaction whenever I heard that song. And I, it's just some, I don't know why or what it is, but I think that more so than 
God Save the King, as it is now, which, to be honest, is a bit of a dirge. Oh, definitely, um, a, definitely yeah. a huge dirge. <laughs> no doubt about that, it's a dirge. Yeah. But you have to... Yeah. You have to Victorious, happy, and glorious. You have to, you have to kind of, it's ridiculous. You see, I'm very much in Billy Connolly's court in this. You know, that he, years ago he said that, oh, it's so slow, it's such a dirge. It really, the, the UK national anthem ought to be Barrowell Green, which, of course, is the theme tune from The Archers. And, uh, you know, is the oh, idea... that's good. It's, it's yeah, the perfect... That's a real comedy knees up, it's, isn't it? So his idea yeah. was when your team processed in the arena at the beginning of the Olympics, they, they would be high-stepping and, and kind <laughs> yes. of jolly, yes. rather yes. than yes. the slow, funereal, you know, mark. That is, that's but, uh, cartoonish. The other difficult thing about the National Anthem was, of course, it has to be something that can be played by a brass band or something like it and and possibly sung by a bunch of burly chaps in blazers. You know, that, that, I've got very definite yes. feelings about this. is why every year at the Six Nations, the whole rugby-watching world all sits there and watches all of them and, think, and always thinks the same thing. The Marseillais, brilliant. Uh, and the Welsh national anthem, brilliant. Yes. Everything else, I'm sorry, terrible. And it doesn't matter whether they're new ones or old ones. They're kind of terrible next to, next to you know, the Marseillais and the Welsh. But when you hear the Marseillais, uh, you know, even, even a British person, you want to join in. Absolutely. It's just, you, you mean, you do, partly there's a Beatles connection there, but you just want to join in because <laughs> it's just so singable, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, well, it, it, it's, it's an idea. It's an interesting idea, Roger. And uh, and we'll, I'm sure people will have views on it. You know, there's probably I'm people. I'm sure they will. Yes, probably people going away doing brass band arrangements of it <laughs> as we speak. Smith's numbers. <laughs> yeah. So look, thanks very much, Roger, for that no, uh, for that log on the fire, and uh, happy birthday, and all the very thanks. best. This podcast was brought to you by the Word. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.